All right. Well, I'm just going to sit right here because I'm just sort of a part of a conversation right now that I want to hear as much from you. So all I'm really hoping right now is we had a little time to talk about those two questions in our smaller groups. And I just thought it'd be good to talk about them in this bigger group to whatever extent you want to. I understand, especially on the second question, sometimes talking about a time or a place where God's love got through to you means telling a story that you don't necessarily want to share to a group. So I fully understand that. I want to respect the limits of how many people you want to hear about that thing you did. Um, I understand not that, not that you did anything, of course, but you know, your neighbor, that person, um, maybe your wife, but not you. I understand fully. Um, but first, let's just talk a little bit about some of the reasons, some of the things you said in your group or that you heard in your group about why there's this disconnect between what God says to us in Jesus. I love you. I give you rest and how we experience life with all its fears of no one could ever love me and all the exhaustion that comes from being, as Samuel Johnson put it, chained to ourselves, thinking that we define who we are. Why do we experience this disconnect? What are some of the reasons that you guys talked about? I was struck by, like, confusion. Hmm. I have a difficult time figuring out day-to-day waking up activities which are consistent with my life as a follower of Jesus yeah. Yeah, you wake up and you've got however many things that you have to do that day, whether it's life with your kids, life with your spouse, life with your friends, life at work. And in some sense, you're going to have to be the subject of a whole lot of verbs. Right? You've got a lot of things that you need to do. And how does that relate to, not just as an idea, but how can you actually go through doing those things in some way that it meaningful relates to the fact that Jesus is the ground and basis for who you are? Don't Thank forget you. life with your football team. Well, yeah, forgot. Um, I thought it'd be funny, yes. but it hit really close to home. Well, fair enough. Um, my football team's been struggling. Um, well, I so. along those lines, what the world sees as important, what our sinful nature mm. is drawn to the flesh. Yep. And, but the reality that we are aliens in this world ruled by Satan, hmm. and that some of the terms of that is just something not deal with, go with, or it's almost like it's out of bounds to dwell on that mm. in a sense, but it's a, such a reality that uh, controls a great part of our everyday no, actions. I, I think that's absolutely right. The experience we feel of a disconnect is because there's kind of this dislocation, right? There's this sense that we live here. But First Peter describes the Christians, he addresses the Christians as resident aliens. That's the phrase he uses when he opens First Peter. You're resident aliens. You live here. But this is what you believe and what's true of you and what you call it. It doesn't actually fit with how this world works. This is why Paul will say things like the word of the cross that we preach is foolishness and it's scandalous, right? It's foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It just doesn't makes sense. It doesn't fit. And so there's a sense in which what we're saying doesn't work within the systems and the common sense and the career models and the economies and the politics and the relationship structures of this world. It's just out of joint with those. And we but feel that. We don't cooperate. They'll crush us. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you just sort of try this with, say, your boss, expect your boss to relate to you as God does in the gospel. Just give it a shot. Don't give it a shot if you want to have a job. So I'm not giving you this advice. I'm just saying, sort of give it a shot, and you'll find out that the world doesn't work like 
the gospel of Jesus Christ says God relates to you. So there's a disconnect. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's absolutely right. And all those tensions, what they point to is the fact that these things are actually real and going on at the same time. This is the thing it's easy to forget about the Christian life, but it's the thing we really confess. And it sounds like it shouldn't be relevant because in theology it goes under a term eschatology, and that doesn't sound important. That sounds like something that happens at the end. It doesn't actually describe us now. But if Jesus was right and he came and said things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet he also taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, Right? If resurrection is something that happens at the end of time and yet Jesus was raised from the dead, then that means that both the old world and the new creation exist right now at the same time. And we exist right where they overlap. And in ourselves and in our experience, nothing has changed. This is really important to remember. In your old nature and in your flesh, when you become a Christian, nothing changes. You are as much a human being as you were before you became a Christian. You have not transplanted to some new sort of genus of Homo sapien, right? You are still in your flesh, in yourself. But something has completely changed insofar as you're in Christ and given the Spirit. And these things exist at exactly the same time. And you have this conflict between you and you. You and yourself and you and Christ. You and the flesh and you and the Spirit. And they meet every day. But here's the thing. They meet every day. But which one of them can you see? Which one of them can you touch? Which one of them stares back at you when you look in the mirror? Right? Is it the you in Christ and you by the Spirit? Or is it you in the flesh, you the old creature, that hasn't actually changed? The, all our senses, well, there's one exception to that, um, which I'll say in a minute, but all our senses, our sense of sight, our sense of taste, our sense of touch, all of these things don't experience any kind of change when we say who we are has fundamentally changed because we are who Christ says we are. But yet I look in the mirror, I see the same person. I go to work, I have the same job. I wake up, I have the same children. Right? I roll over in bed, it's the same wife. Right? But as one person in our group said, I think really meaningfully, I'm the same person, I have the same job, I have the same kids, I'm going to the same church, I'm married to the same wife, and yet something's completely different. I'm not the same person. Right? But that's not a description of what you see when you look in the mirror. That's a description of what you hear 
when the gospel comes to you somehow, whether it's in a sermon, whether it's in um, a sort of human-to-human relationship, which we'll talk about that in just a minute. But that's kind of the gap we're talking about, this tension between our two selves, who we are in ourselves and who we are in Christ, but the just fact that the only one you can see or get your hands on is the one that hasn't changed at all. It's the old you. That's still who you live with and wake up with. And it can be a little disconcerting, especially if you have believed the lie that when you become a Christian, you stop being a human being. If you believe that, that you've been sort of transported into the new age and you've left the old behind, and then you wake up in the morning and you find yourself is still there, you go on a retreat and you find that you brought your biggest problem with you, you don't have any categories to deal with that. And you wind up saying things like, well, maybe I, maybe I wasn't actually a Christian. Maybe I didn't really believe. Maybe I need to sort of do it again, right? But if what happens is God loves and gives you another self so that the life I live in the flesh, notice how Paul's still living a life in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you've got both those things at the same time. But I think you're absolutely right. One of the disconnects here is we've got this conflict of selves and only one of them can we actually get our hands on. Another one we can just hear. Yep. Would it be appropriate to describe it as a self-actualization of being a citizen of the New Jerusalem, hmm. yet living, living in fallen Babylon? Yeah, I think that's a helpful uh, image to capture this. I mean, it's a biblical image. This is not your home, right? You are citizens of a city whose builder and foundation is God. Like this kind of language. He writes to, Paul writes to the church in Colossians, in Colossians says, you are citizens of heaven, right? This kind of language, which is just like this resident alien. We don't fit here. But again, how does that get appropriated and lived? And here you're using the language of self-actualization. How, does you, how do you sort of experience or actualize that when you live right here in you know, Birmingham, Alabama? You're a citizen of heaven. Now, in Birmingham, that's easy to believe. You know, Well, of course I am. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, but... You know, let's just say, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you guys. For me, it would be, what if you were from Dallas, right? Then, obviously, you would be a resident alien, because that's obviously not the kingdom of God. But that's just, I'm an Eagles fan, you see, so that makes perfect sense to me. So I don't know what to say to this group of people, so I'm not going to try. But to me, if I lived in Dallas, it would be easier to believe in Jesus, right? But, um, so, anyway, we don't need to run down that line. There's a whole lot that wants to come out right now that I'm... Suppressing. Filter. Filter. Yep. run directly counter to what we're talking about here. Something you can't see, a promise that's made by God into your present situation, and one that takes your hands off the driving wheel, right? You're no longer steering and says Jesus is in control. And of course, I mean, we all want to sing the Carrie Underwood song now, Jesus take the wheel. Um, now, I know you didn't want to sing that. That was extremely funny, guys. I'm not sure what just happened. I thought I was at the women's retreat for about five seconds, but I looked up after I said it and thought, what's just happened? Don't girls just want to have fun, people? Um, that's not my experience, by the way, but don't worry about that either. Um, but you've got that, and you've got this thing that's, you know, you're 
you are the sort of captain of your own ship, right? You decide what's good for you, what's true for you, etc. And if that's right, okay, I'm going to say it. I was going to try to avoid quoting this particular philosopher because it sounds pretentious, but nevertheless, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existential philosopher, he said this. He said, we live in an age in which we are completely free to be whatever we want to be, right? That's, that's sort of the modern manifesto. Make of yourself whatever you want to be. You generate yourself by your life and your works and your achievements. But then he said, if that's right, you're free, but you're condemned to freedom. You live in the prison of your own performance. What you produce, well, that's who you are. And so you only bear one chain. You're only locked in one jail, but that jail is you. Whatever you make of yourself, that's who you are. He says, if you want to call that freedom, fine. I think I'll kill myself. You know, that was sort of Sartre's approach to that. And I hear that. If my hands are on the steering wheel and I'm driving, that's a kind of I'm in control. But I think better to have my hands ripped off the wheel and let Jesus drive. Right? So, but I, I totally hear that and feel that. I know for me, and this came out in our group a little bit, for me, one of the reasons I feel this disconnect is not just between I wake up in the morning and I see myself. It's also to the extent that I know myself. Right? which is not, I don't have a profound self-awareness, but to the extent I know myself, I find it hard to believe that someone could say, I love you to me without crossing their fingers. Right? If they're saying it to me, well, it's probably because I've convinced them of something that's not actually true about me. I've just hidden something. Or if they're saying it to me, then they're just not being honest. Right? I know myself well enough to believe that every I love you spoken to me might be a lie. And when you translate that into the gospel where God says, I love you to us in Jesus, it's hard to not feel the gap between what we think he should be saying to us and our guilt and sin and then what he actually says, which is, I love you. And so this disconnect can just happen because it just can't be true, right? I'm sure God is love is a true statement. I actually, this is true. I don't have much problem believing that God loves you guys. Joe, I actually think God loves you, right? And I can say that to you, and I believe it. I find it really hard to believe that he loves me, right? It's that third word in the sentence, I love you, that I think is hard to believe. It's the you part that I find that's hard to believe. And that's, that's where this sort of, that's where the troubled water is. And when I'm looking for a bridge over troubled water, I'm, I'm looking for something that will overcome the disbelief that God could actually love me. Not just love in general, but actually me, with my history, with my fears, with my questions, with my attitudes, right? With my parenting failures, et cetera, et cetera. That's how I feel this. Yeah. Can you go back and reiterate what you said, whatever you say to yourself, that would be approved. Yeah, um, I can try. I have a apparently an allergy to saying the same thing twice, but I'm going to try. Um, so I was using the image of Jean-Paul Sartre, who said that we are free in the sort of modern world. It's kind of the modern manifesto from the Enlightenment on, as he understood it. We're free because each person is supposed to be in control of their own destiny. Right? Karl Marx, for example, said that we are generated, we're self-generated by our works. 
That's how he talked about it. And there's this whole notion that you are what you do. And he said, if that's right, then you're free in a certain sense in that you only bear one chain or you're only in one jail. There's only one thing that you're tied to or locked to or chained to, and that's you. You just simply are what you do. And in that sense, you're condemned to be free because you're chained to yourself. So make whatever you want out of life, guys. Right? Here's, here's the gospel according to modernism, as Jean-Paul Sartre would say it. Guys, you're completely free to make of yourself and your life and your experience whatever you want. Just know that whatever you make of it, that'll be who you are. So you've got to take yourself with you. And Sartre said, to me, that sounds like bad news, not good news. And I, at least, relate to that. Right? The one person I want to be untied from when it comes to who I am is me. Right? I'd much rather take what my wife thinks and says about me, which I don't understand why she thinks and says what she does, because I know myself. But I'd much rather take that than what I think and say when I look in the mirror in the morning. Right? S-A-T-R-E. S-A-R-T. Yeah, you just asked me to do, I just faced my fears. You know, people say, if you face your fears, you'll overcome them. I want you to know that that's not true. That's a lie. If you face your fears, you'll become more afraid of them, in my experience. You see, I, when I was in third grade, I was in a spelling bee. And I was, I was a cocky little kid. Um, some things don't change. But I, I stood up, and the teacher said, this is in front of the whole school, slide. And I said, slide. I said, is it from the Latin? Because I thought that was a very impressive thing to say. Is it from the Latin? And she said, no, it's from the English. And I said, well, okay, slide. S-L-I-D. Slide. And I sat down. It was silence, followed by laughter. And I didn't know what happened. And ever since, I have had a public fear of spelling. And I got a job where you turn around and you write on a board in multiple languages. This was a terrible idea. So what the students don't see is I turn around to write on the board. I sort of make the sign of the cross. I sort of pull out a rosary. I kneel down. I get, and then I write like God, G-O-D. Oh, my God. Thank the Lord I spelled it right. You know, it's a complete panic every time. Um, so all that to say that's how you spell his name. And thanks for the help. So. All right, well, I think we're hearing some important things here. The disconnect exists for a lot of reasons. One, because the me that I have an experience of, the me that other people are interacting with in the world, in our workplace, in our relationships, and in our relationship to ourselves, is the old me. It's the me I can see. It's me and what I do and what I think and who's looking back at me in the mirror. And our only access to the me that God says we are is our ears. That's why Martin Luther liked to say, the ears are the essential organ of the Christian. The ears are the only way that God gets to you. He goes through here and he makes a promise. But we can feel that disconnect. We feel it because we don't live in a place where this makes sense. We feel it because the world is telling us something very different about what reality is and who controls that reality. And um, there's also this gap between our guilt and God's grace. So there's all these ways in which we're experiencing this disconnect. Yeah. Johnny, you just mentioned, so in this world where sees of us is mm-hmm. the old There are also the cases of your wife who sees yep. something different. Yep. And 
Adam squared. <laughs> you see something different. So is there, are there moments in the world that there are those, or maybe we are to be seeing the new Adam and others yep. helping break that relentless message of the old Adam? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely is the answer to that question. I think it's a nice segue into our second thing. One of the things that is true, that I've already said, is that I believe that God loves Joe. Right? I'm not sure about the rest of you yet, but I, I believe that God loves Joe. Now, Joe may wake up and find that hard to believe, right? because he's Joe. And so, I love you spoken to Joe could be hard to believe. And one of the things that we are given to do for each other, a ministry that we're all called to, not just as clergy, but as people in relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, is to tell them that truth about themselves. Like Paul does to the church in Corinth. You who are in this mess, right, are holy, holy saints in Christ Jesus. And it's given to us to see that reality in Christ about other people and to speak that to them because they can't see it in themselves. And I think, this is actually what I think, there's a lot of, in my opinion, useless stuff written about Ephesians chapter 5, which is the chapter about husbands, love your wives, lives, love your husbands, parents, uh, love your children, etc. And then it says fathers, do not sort of, it's a hard word to translate, but don't exasperate your children. I always receive that one as a, oh man, um, trying, not succeeding. Nevertheless, um, that line, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. This to me is actually exactly what we're talking about here. We can't love our wives like Christ loved the church in the sense that we can live a perfect life for them, die and sacrifice ourselves for their sins so that they can be forgiven. That can't be what that means because only one person gets to do that. Hebrews, Christ sacrificed once and for all. So that can't be what it means. But what Christ does do for his bride, the church, is say to them who they are in him in a way that contradicts who they are in themselves. I don't know. I spend some of my time reading sort of women's self-help books. Um, I'm sure you do too. I'm just trying to understand. I'm trying to understand. And so I read these things. And one of the really common things you find in here, in these self-help books, by the way, I was just in... Uh, Reed's Museum of Fine Memories. Some of you will know this in Birmingham. It's a great bookstore. And my wife noticed this. She said, oh, come here. You're going to love this. She takes me to the self-help section, which in Reed's is mercifully small. It's a very small section, only about two shelves. But on the self-help section, the most prominent title is a book called Sue the Bastards. And I just thought, that is so great. <laughs> I, just that. I mean, that's got to help. You've got to at least feel better. Um, so I thought that was, I didn't buy it. I took a picture of it, sort of with the thing. Um, but one of the things you find in women's especially, I, I don't read men's self-help, but in women's self-help books, what you find is this thing called vanity affirmations, or sometimes they're called mirror motivators. And the idea is that around your vanity, you should put words or phrases that capture what you want to be. So this isn't who you are yet but it's what you want to be. So like CEO, great mom, good cook, marathon runner, right? These kinds of things. So when you see them in the morning, you'll be motivated to bridge the gap through your hard work that day between what you are and what you need to be. 
and you'll work hard, and at the end of the day, you'll be a little closer to being a CEO. But it seems to me that Jesus' advice would be a little different if he wrote a self-help book. The way husbands might love their wives like Christ loved the church would be a little different. It would be to sneak into the room where the vanity is, take off all that crap that talks about what they hope they can become through their hard work, get rid of that, and write some affirmations that tell them who they are in Christ right now. Pure, spotless, beloved, undefiled, without wrinkle. Right? That one actually might hit a little close to the bone, but <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually a phrase in the New Testament. Um, without wrinkle, um, you know, holy, beautiful, these kinds of things. And you put those there. And this is, to me, how Christ loves the church. He speaks to us. He gives us names and identities that are grounded in who he is rather than who we are and says, that's you. You're beautiful. You're pure. You're holy. You're spotless. You're beloved. Right? I don't feel that about myself when I wake up. But maybe my wife can say it to me. Most of the time, I won't believe her. But there are moments in which I'm sort of susceptible to it for some reason. And this is actually sort of what takes us right to the heart of the second question. What are those times, and again, you can talk about this more generally if you want to tell a story, you're welcome to, but what are those times, what are those places, what are the conditions in which God actually breaks through this, in which there's actually a bridge or a spanning of this gap between what he says and it actually getting to us in some way that it's in touch with our lived experience. Um, We sort of had some helpful discussions of this in our group, which I can share um, discreetly if I need to, but I want to open it up for you guys to sort of point to some things that may have come up in your groups. I just, you know, you said, Luther said, you know, our ears are the only yep. but Holy Scripture hmm. is where we need to be. Yep. We look everywhere else, but His promises, His truth have never disappointed. They've never been found to be lacking or yep. false. And uh, while we don't understand it all, or it's somehow it's just baffling, or just that he loves us, it's hard for us to accept. Yeah. But uh, I guess, uh, I mean, that to me is the answer to all our problems, is to hear the word, read the word, you know, and we're going to digest the word. Yeah. It's, you know, and if that sounds simple, but it's, it's hard to, uh, uh, as a human, yeah. to uh, both trust in it, even though we found it to be fully trustworthy, well there and live there, and I think experientially we all know that that's true, and we've all seen or it change our lives, and uh, again, that wanted to go back to the fire. No, I think that's absolutely right, though. I mean, this is something that needs to be spoken to us and that gets in through the ear. And there are rendezvous points where God has said, I will meet you with this promise. I will meet you with this word that contradicts your common sense experience of yourself in the world. And Scripture is the principal one. It's a rendezvous point where God has promised to speak this to you. Right? Holy Communion is another rendezvous point, as I see it. A sermon should be a rendezvous point. At the Advent, it normally is, which is a wonderful thing. I've heard some sermons that say something a little different, but let's not talk about that. But there are these places 
where God has promised to speak this message. And being at those places is often a place where the bridging happens, or at least can happen. Yeah. God hasn't gone anywhere. I really appreciate you saying that. I heard two, I just think, absolutely crucial things in there. One, if, you, if you're be able to look back and realize that the times where there's been disconnect, it's not that God went anywhere, that he was gone or he sort of changed his mind or he took a day off and said, oh, sorry, you needed me that day. I was a little busy and, you know, I was sort of down at the beach and couldn't make it. But it had something more to do with you and what was going on in your experience of that. So it wasn't actually that you were disconnected from God. He wasn't gone, but you just weren't sort of perceiving it in the same way. But the most important thing I heard you say is when this point of connection happened is when you said help. And one of the things I want to say, maybe the only thing I want to say, is that it's it's not even just that prayer, though it is. Remember, do you guys know who T.D. Jakes is? Bishop Jakes? No. Yeah, that's exactly. That's perfect. I'll do it. Let's do it again. He says there's only one prayer, and it goes like this. Help. Yeah, that's great. His voice is a little different than that, but um, that, that gets the idea. He says that's the only prayer, and I actually love that. That's actually the only prayer. But one of the things I've noticed, and I'm actually sort of a collector of stories about where God's grace has gotten through, and almost without exception, it's the story of someone saying help because they're at a moment or a point or a place where that's the only thing they have left to say. It's never, well, you know, God got through and everything was just normal and it was going fine and I was feeling good and it wasn't like my best day ever. I would have thanked God for that, but it wasn't a bad day. I was just driving along, listening to, you know, whatever I listened to on the radio and all of a sudden I thought, you know what? I'm just so loved by God. I just don't hear those stories. 
I, I want to hear those stories. I want that to be my story. I want my life to not have to change at all. I want to not have to experience any pain <laughs> or anything and for God to just get through in all the mundane. But where he's actually gotten through to me and what I hear you saying, and we heard in my group certainly, is that it's at those places where you have been taken out of the equation in some way. Either there's been a success in your life. These are rare, I'm afraid, but nevertheless, it does happen. There's been a, a good thing happened in your life that's just so beyond something you could have engineered that at least for a moment you realized, oh my gosh, this is a gift, right? And I do think these happen, that we have a way very quickly after that to sort of retell the story in such a way that we did engineer it. Hi, I, you know, maybe I did pull that off. Um, but nevertheless, the much more common story is being at a place where you need help, where you can't do this. There was this wonderful image in our group that someone shared. It said, it's like if your car gets stuck in the mud. And what you'll do if your car first gets stuck in the mud is you will try everything you can think of to get your car out of the mud. You'll push it, you'll dig, you'll fight, you'll do everything you can. But if you're really stuck in the mud and it just keeps sinking lower and now it's finally stuck and you need outside help, you need someone to bring in some boards, or you need to call a tow truck, right, or something like that. Or if you happen to have driven into the lake right here and your car is actually at the bottom of the lake, it's then when you say help that you actually seem to perceive and receive the help that's been there all along. And this is the thing. God didn't go anywhere. But now you actually see and sense in some way the God who was there. Right? It's at those places of help. I can't do this. I need something, someone else that God seems to get through. It's places where we're taken out of the equation, when our hands are ripped off the steering wheel and we're not in control. Do you want to... So how do we, I mean, the question is, how do we connect with Christ outside of the experience of I'm in a friggin' crisis yeah. and I need some help? I think that's a great question. Um, again, I do think, I mean, I think what David was pointing to here is very much worth saying, and I believe it. Here's, here's the basic theological answer, which I think we should take seriously as it relates to this question of just how do we connect to Christ day to day. The theological answer is that there's only one bridge, right? The question here is the disconnect between being given Christ, which we have, and the sort of reception or experience of that. And in Scripture, there's only one way that Christ is given, and that's through the Word, through the promise. So the practical question is, well, where does God speak that? He speaks it when believers come together, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. And he speaks it in sort of sermons. He gives himself in the bread and the wine and in baptism and in prayers in places like that. He certainly promises to make that connection through his word in scripture. So these are the places where this sort of happens in these mundane habits of the Christian life, right? And he also says, um, this is 1 John 4 again. Remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, no one has ever seen God. Well, John says, no one has ever seen God, but the Son, the one who is from the Father's side, he has made him known. So the answer to the question, what does God look like, is Jesus Christ. But when you ask the question, how is Jesus Christ given and perceived? It's interesting that in 1 John 4, John says the same thing. No one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, his love abides with us. So that God is love that he says in Jesus is actually felt and experienced in our loves for each other. And this is 
one of the things I find. A lot of times when people start telling these stories about where God's love has gotten in, there's two things that tend to happen. One, it's a story where something happened that made them need help. And that is so diverse. And sometimes to the outside person, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. It doesn't look like a crisis at all. It looks like a fairly small thing. But to them, for whatever reason, it was experienced as the pulling out of the rug from under their life. And then in that moment when they were saying help, there was another person that just was there with them, that said, I love you, that gave them a hug, that didn't walk away. And I think it's fascinating to see those two things come together so much. Real need and another person that God says, I love you through, right? And I'll tell you a story in just a moment about one way that that's happened with me. But I think those two things. So you've got these places, I call them the rendezvous points, where God has promised to minister and give us the word, to give us Jesus Christ. But having said that, these things just seem to rumble on and our ears seem to get clogged very quickly and we are those who trust our sight and our senses much more than the promise that we're hearing. And God loves us too much to let us just move on with our delusions and the various idols that we build up around them. And he will do, because he loves you, he will do whatever it takes to bring you to the point where you say help again. This is a scary but merciful thing that God does. He will continually bring you back to places where you say help. That doesn't have to. And I pray, actually pray, this is some advice that Paul Zoll once gave me, for those of you who know him, when I started having kids. He said, pray that your kids sort of have their nervous breakdown before they can act out in such a way that they'll be sort of physically bear the marks of it. Before it has to be a car accident, let it be something else. Because they need to be brought to a point where they say help. I actually pray for my kids that they'll be reduced to a place where they are aware of their own inabilities before God at as young an age as possible before they can act out. But the truth is, it's not just a one-time thing, isn't it? Um, Gil said something in our group that I thought was meaningful as we were talking about these experiences. He said, you know, these just aren't common experiences. You can ask this question, and most of us maybe have one, two kinds of things to share. They just don't happen that often in life where it actually gets through, and you're actually brought to that place. There are these sort of rare, beautiful moments, and um, I want to take that seriously. You know, I don't want to say, well, it shouldn't be that way, and dang it, every day with Jesus should be sweeter than the day before. Right? That would be nice. That's actually just not what it's meant to be a Christian for me. That's not how it's felt. And if it's felt that way for you, then praise God. But if you're anything like me, and the fears tend to pile up again until finally I'm kind of pushed out of the way, and once I'm out of the equation, I'm actually able to say, oh, God, you're still here. Right? You're still doing this. Um, but I do think, and I just, I'll, this is the last thing I'll say about that, is I do think that it's at the place of help where God gets through to us. I believe that without exception. It's at the place where we're saying, I can't. But it's at least theoretically possible that that doesn't have to mean life crisis. It can just mean sort of honesty about the human condition and your condition. It can mean a place where people talk seriously about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a sinner, what it is that God actually requires. This is the great work that God does through the preaching of his law 
his holy, righteous, and good law, is he tells us the truth about ourselves. He says, you want to know what I look like? And he shows us a picture of his character in his law. And when you stare into the mirror of that, what you realize is that the serpent was lying when he said, you will be like God. Because you look at his law and you say, whoa, if that's what God is like, I'm not him. Help. Right? And so maybe it doesn't have to be a car accident or cancer. Maybe it can be an honest confrontation with what God actually demands. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So having a church, having a group of friends and a Bible that says that, so you can look it in the face and say, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? It's at that place. And anything that's making you say that is something worth hearing. But just remember that when you're saying that, God has something else and stronger to say. Right? When you're saying that, when the law of God or your circumstances have reduced you to saying, I can't do this, God has something else to say. The law and your inability do not get the last word. Jesus Christ gets the last word. And he says, I know you can't, but I can and I have and I love you. And it's those places where I think these connections happen. How are we doing on time, Joe? Uh, you got about eight minutes. Eight minutes. So let me just say one thing very briefly, and this will just sort of close this out. Let me just tell you one story that you probably know from Scripture as a way to sort of bring this to conclusion. We will be done, we'll be done in seven minutes. Um, tops. Maybe five. But let me just tell you, this is the story of Jacob. Um, and you probably know the story of Jacob's ladder. Uh, but Jacob has a dream. And this dream that he has, I think, brings together a lot of the stuff we've been talking about here. And the situation is, is that Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, so these great promises have been made. You'll have this great big family. You'll have this land. Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And these promises have been made again and again. And in Jacob's experience, it seems impossible that any of these promises can come true. He's a fugitive. He's on the run from his brother. He's basically got no family that he's even close to because he's on the run. He's not in the land where he's supposed to be. And everything that God has promised seems impossible. And he doesn't know what to do other than curl up and go to bed. And when he goes to bed, God gets through. So notice what happens here. This is Jacob. Um, He lay down in that place with his head on a stone. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you to you and to your offspring. And your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I just want to point out two things about this. One, there's clearly a bridging of a gap here, explicitly. Right? There's a ladder that bridges the gap between heaven and earth, between God and us. And Jesus in the Gospel of John interprets this directly about himself. When he's calling Nathaniel, he says to Nathaniel, you will see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder. 
I'm the one that connects heaven and earth. I'm the bridge over this troubled water. Right? I'm both the one who comes to you in the flesh and bridges the gap between you and God. And in my death, I'm the one who forgives you and overcomes or heals the gap between your guilt and God's holiness. But to say that is simply to repeat what we've been saying. It's not actually to answer the question. It's just to say that Jesus is actually both the answer to our question and is the question. Well, how do I actually have an experience of him? How do I encounter him and receive him? And this is what I think is remarkable about this passage. Not just that God says his promise again, and Jesus says the promise is actually about me, but that God actually gets through to Jacob here. This is what I want to notice. God actually gets through to Jacob. But notice a couple things. Jacob is at a point where he can't do anything. He's at one of these help points. The promise seems impossible. He's a fugitive. He's exiled from the land he's supposed to inherit. He's on the run from his family, and he's not even with his wife and children. So how is God going to give him a land and give him a great family that will bless the whole world? It just seems impossible. Everything about his circumstances contradict what God says is true, the kind of disconnect we're talking about here. And what happens, what God has to do to get through to Jacob is to wait until he's asleep. You can see why I was attracted to this passage. He lays down. He has a rock for a pillow. No coconut husk mattress. He has a rock for a pillow. And he goes to sleep. And while he's asleep, he has a dream. And in this dream, God just totally reaffirms the promise. He says, I will give you a land. You will bless the people. And I am with you. And Jacob wakes up. Nothing in his circumstances has changed. He still has a rock for a pillow. He's still a fugitive on the run. He still, if it comes to him in his capacity, has no ability to make these promises come true. They're just as impossible. But while he was asleep, God made a promise. And he wakes up and he says, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. God was never gone. God was the one who made the promise. And God is the one who will still make the promise come true. And it seems to me that it's in these kinds of places that the Lord makes the promise in a way we can hear. You know, you get a call from your wife that confirms a diagnosis. And you find out, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Your teenager calls with a crisis, and you find out, oh, the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Your marriage gets rocky, and you find out, oh, the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. You see the gap between what you must be, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and yet who you are, just you. And you say, help, and you find out the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. What I'm basically trying to say, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, is that the times that I have experienced myself and the times that I hear other people saying and what I see in Scripture, the times when God's I love you gets through, when his rest actually comes, is the time when everything that we use to sort of defend ourselves from honesty about ourselves gets stripped away. And we can't deny the fact 
that someone's actually looking at the real me, that I'm actually known and exposed and seen. Gil kept using the language in our group of undressed, and I'm actually seen for who I am. And when there's no doubt about that, it's the scariest moment in the world because you're sure that someone's going to walk away. What does Elsa say in Frozen? She says, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Put on a show, don't let them know, right? And that's sort of what we do. But when that's all taken away and someone stands right there and is with you in that place, the Lord is in that place. In my life, this has been my wife and this has been my oldest son. My oldest son has both shown me things about myself that I couldn't think would be true. The amount of anger I can feel toward a child, right? The amount of selfishness that actually controls my daily life. I didn't know until I had a child that needed things from me. But through that same child, in his love for me, God has said, I know you. I really do. But I love you. And it's through that that this has actually gotten through. These moments of being known. And the last scripture that I want to leave you with, which sort of brings us all together, Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Remember, Jacob was asleep. And this is basically the metaphor. This is what needs to happen for God to get through. He needs to put you to sleep. He needs to get you out of the way. He needs to render you inactive. He needs to take your hands off the steering wheel. He needs to, as Luther says, kill you. This is a holy, bitter day, this day of rest. For to cease from work is to be dead. We need to be put to sleep. But to be put to sleep is not to be removed from God's place of action and meeting. Psalm 127 says, In vain do you rise early and do you toil and go late to rest. But the Lord gives to his beloved even while they sleep. Even when we are at that place where we can do nothing, especially at those places where we can do nothing, when we are asleep and we are saying, help, God gives to his beloved. And what he gives is Jesus Christ, the one who said, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Let me just say a little prayer for us um, as we close along these themes. Let's pray together. God, in our fear and lack of faith, in our weariness and our exhaustion, put us to sleep and let us dream of Jesus so that when we wake, we might have eyes to see that you are in this place in ears to hear what your son said. It is finished. And so today I ask that because of him, we might rest in peace. Amen.